Hey everyone, this is Rob Liefeld. You are listening to Observations, uh, our, our, our comic book, pop culture, movie streaming, superhero, everything, sci-fi show. It's, uh, it's like I'm a kid. This is my uh, treehouse that I am uh, broadcasting from uh, when, when I am just a wee lad, except they, they, get, they put me in this adult body, which I feel trapped in, but I refuse to give in, so I keep my mind and spirit young, and I do that by dwelling on everything that I ever loved in the world of comic books, which, as we have said so often, is there a week now? Is there literally a week that there is not a comic book-related something happening somewhere, okay? So, uh, you know, we, 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 we had Black Widow, and uh, we had, uh, what's, what's 2021 been around about so far? We have Invincible, which crushed it on Amazon. Uh, I don't know if we had the end of the boys. Did, did boys season two spill into 2021? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, you know, once it's, once it's there, it's, it's up forever. Cause it's, it's loaded. It's on Amazon. You know, we got WandaVision winter soldier. We got, we got Loki. We got what if, uh, you, you know, we got Titans doom patrol is coming. I'm missing all the CW shows. Uh, Theatrically, we got the Snyder Cut. We got so Justice League, the Snyder Cut. We got we got Black Widow. We got Shang Chi. We got we have the Eternals on the way in sci-fi. We got Dune. Okay, which I'm still just wow. Uh, it's so funny. Dune has become the new kind of hot topic. Uh, I, I hope you guys saw it in in a theater in a screen. I even had a buddy of mine who was like, you know what? I didn't want to see it, but I went and saw it. And I, I it didn't move the way I wanted it to move. But man, was it beautiful! And I couldn't stop looking at every aspect of the screen. I really believe that um, Dune by Denis Villeneuve is, uh, I hope I did that justice. I believe it is basically 16 paintings uh, that he painted, it's like canvases, and that he carried his camera across the canvas uh, for us to behold uh, for two and a half hours. I loved it. I ate it up. I felt like it was returned to a, a style of school filmmaking that we don't, have anymore uh, because in truth, and there's a real conversation to be had here about how much Marvel films change the culture, the way they move and, and, and the way they uh, are structured and what they're expected to deliver. I spoke about this on the Eternals uh, broadcast that I believe the Eternals movie being so different because it's by such a distinct filmmaker. I believe that, uh, that the the uh, I believe that it it does not uh, perform like a Marvel movie, and what I mean by that, I'm talking not talking box. I'm not talking box office success. I am literally speaking of the way it moves us. the The Marvel movies are very designed to thrill and to move you. You know, affect your sensory you know condition. And uh, case in point, Black Widow, which I very much loved, uh, opens with a pulse-pounding shot, you know, in Natasha's past, introducing her family. They have to make a quick getaway. The uh, American agents are on them. They've been exposed as double agents in Russia. There's a thrilling sequence with David Harbour, who's playing the Red Guardian, whether he's going to make the plane or not. Um, This is all before the credits, okay? Then once we settle in, we settle in with Natasha. She's kind of living her life away. 
and uh, boom, you know, post-Civil War, and she's attacked by the Taskmaster. I was not expecting the movie to get that much action that quickly. And I really enjoyed that battle on the bridge where Taskmaster, you know, comes at her and we see how formidable Taskmaster is and it's not as easy for our heroine, for Black Widow to take Taskmaster down and then she escapes with her life. And the next thing, we're introduced to her sister and her sister's, uh, you know, agents and, and how she kind of goes awry because the gas awakens her and then the two of them meet and they fight. There's a lot of action. It's what I like at a comic books and it gave it to me. Um, a little... A movie to me that gave me sweeping action that I loved, and I don't think we've talked about it here, but it's No Time to Die, the final Daniel Craig, the final James Bond film. I think Carrie Fukunaga is, Corey, Carrie, Carrie Fukunaga is uh, one of the most talented directors that we have, I believe. Uh, He directed every episode of the first volume, the first edition of True Detective with uh, Matthew McConaughey and with... Woody Harrelson, and I am telling you his direction in that series stands out. It's signature kind of uh, style of the film. I know a lot has been made of the uh, the writer-producer who became synonymous with True Detective, but without Carrie Fukunaga's uh, visual stylings. And I believe it's in issue episode four or five where he does... Uh, I think it's four. He does the extended, I don't know, is it six, is it seven, is it an eight-minute steady cam shot uh, that, that follows Matthew McConaughey as he has to break his undercover role and move or everything's going to blow up in his face and he puts his life in danger and he has to rendezvous with Woody Harrelson, but he has to take a hostage at the same, at the same time and it is in all of these different um, kind of gangster crack houses. So there's all sorts of violence going down and, and it is the direction of that sequence that is so mind-blowing. It is um, just, every time I watch it, I am just impressed on the the sickest of levels. I I just think it is. um, I can't imagine the rehearsals, the timing, what they had to do to get that Steadicam one-shot sequence, you know, what they had to do to capture it. It blows my mind. But but, but that really, then the next episode, they did a kind of a... uh, an episode that involved a false narrative where the characters are speaking of what happened to them while we were watching that what happened to them is very different and it's thrilling. And he pulls off action, brutal kind of gore, thrills, um, some horror. Uh, True Detective is a, a, an, an impressive, impressive uh, piece of work. He went on to do Beasts of No Nations, I believe it's, it's called. And then, of course, he had this giant, graduation to no time to die which has to me for me the best bond action sequences i've seen in any of the bond movies it's my favorite daniel craig i know that's heresy so many people worship at the altar of skyfall i do not um i think quantum of solace uh is better than most people give it uh uh it's got great ideas i love the world cabal i love um when 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 daniel craig gets on the headset and tells them all he's listening i think it has some great action sequence in and of itself um, Casino Royale is my second favorite. I put No Time to Die top, and then the rest of them I don't really even like worry about or consider. Um, they're all just they're all well made films. They're good, but No Time to Die had some sick. Again, before the act, before the credits, some of the best action in No Time to Die happens before uh, Leah Sadu is put on the train. 
I don't know her name in the movie. It, it escapes me. But really big, stylish action is what you come expect from a Bond film, except they it feels like there was a little bit of a little bit of of, of, of a cinematic sweep uh more stunt work less cg work uh you know less computer graphics so black widow moves to me like a jason bourne or a bond film bond is big sweeping action dune is massive scale sweeping and those two feel different to me uh than black widow and then there's the eternals which is kind of at odds with itself in what it wants to be. Does it want to be a contemplative movie about uh, immortals living among us, even when it has to throw the switch and become an action-packed Marvel movie? And does it achieve the balance? I maintain my biggest problem with The Eternals is some of the casting. I haven't been specific. I won't be specific. I don't want to be specific. It's just my personal opinion. There's a few roles that I would not have cast in that, in those, I would not have, I would, I would have cast those roles differently. I don't, I believe um, the material would have would have worked better because some of these characters are asked to do very significant, uh, you know, carry a lot on their collective shoulders. But so Eternals is coming out a couple weeks. It's different, very different than any Marvel movie you've seen. It's a little bit more contemplative um, and and a little more, I would say, just uh, plotting. It's deliberate. It's very, you know, if you saw Nomadland... There's elements of that kind of, it wants to slow it down. It wants to take its time. I'm not sure that audiences are in for that, you know? So so I've gone over this. Dune, to me, is a movie that feels different. It, it feels like a return to when we would go see a distinct vision of a uh, celebrated filmmaker that, uh, that, 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 is, that is putting their imprimatur on the film. It, that movie is a Denis Villeneuve movie from beginning to end. It is, uh, it's just, I love it. I love how it sits on people's faces. I love how it goes in tight. I love how it pulls out. I love how it goes silent. Uh, I love the special effects. I love actually the lack of like computer stuff, period. But Dune really got people talking to the point where I was seeing people like, oh, it's boring. Don't tell me it's good. I would praise Dune. I would get attacked for praising Dune. It was very funny. We kind of covered this in the dedicated Dune special, but it's a few days later. I What I need to mention about the Dune uh, edition, uh, the Dune podcast, what I am remiss that I did not um, that I did not handle properly is normally I am very good about telling you what I am reading and where I am reading from, and I thought I did, but I was going so fast this podcast, this little podcast that you listen to is quite the homegrown endeavor. Once I finish the show, uh, I mail it to my tech who is in Utah and he uh, prepares the beginning and the closing and he loads it and uh, I don't really hear it again. But uh, I wrote, I, I read from uh, some interviews with Bill Sienkiewicz, Bob Budiansky, Ralph Macchio from a publication called The Comics Journal without properly crediting The Comics Journal. Now, here's the deal. The Comics Journal, there is no slight. It was, it was not intended. It was completely accidental because I love The Comics Journal. The Comics Journal has my best favorite interviews. I have read from you from The Con Comics Journal uh, and told you the authors that I'm reading for several times. 
they did my absolute, I don't have it with me, favorite interview with John Byrne ever. It was published in 1980. It's kind of a forest green cover. The X-Men are on it by Byrne and Austin. And it is where John just opens up and goes to town on everybody. It is literally my favorite interview with anybody ever. He is so open and raw. And we're going to get to some interviews today. So it's, it's, it's uh, on some more comic book related topics. But here's the deal. I was uh, t- terrible error that I did not credit both Robert K. Elder, who wrote the oral history of the comic book, which is a, you know, it's about 12 minutes of the last podcast. We did, you know, some section on the new Dune. We talked about Lynch's Dune. We talked about Lynch's Road to Dune. And then I ended with the comic book. And what I was reading from was by Robert K. Elder. He conducted that oral history that I read from that was published in uh, the Comics Journal. So uh, this is, I guess, me trying to make amends and tell you that Robert K. Elder uh, did the legwork, did the interviews, provided that information. I cannot believe I didn't cite the sources I was reading it. I, I apologize, and I will try in the future not to do that again. Thank you, Robert K. Elder. Thank you, Comics Journal, for uh, providing that great material. So we did an episode on the 90s. Uh, not too long ago, the 90s strike back. And this is kind of the uh, sister to that podcast because I have been in comic books for 35 years as of the time I am recording this podcast. And that came to my awareness through, uh, you've heard me mention the Twitter handle, the Spinner Rack. It's actually at Rack Spinner on Twitter. And every day it shows you what was going on, what was selling on that day throughout mostly Bronze Age, occasionally they do some modern stuff, but they uh, put a lineup of books last night, and uh, it had Marvel Universe Handbook, Book of the Dead, number 20, and that is my first published work in 1987, and that is when I go back and I tell you that I was telling one of the heads, one of the head executives at Marvel that I had been through, let me see, Jim Shooter, Tom DeFalco, the group editor uh, year, Bob Harris, Casada. Alonzo, CB. I've been through seven editor-in-chiefs in my career. Seven editor-in-chiefs. Now, I was at the last year of Jim Shooter, but he's like, you weren't working when Shooter was EIC. And I said, I certainly was. And this is in 1987 when I was hired, when this was done. Shooter was uh, the editor-in-chief uh, as I was, I did the job under him. Of course, the book is then published a couple, like six weeks later. Um, and, uh, and, and, and in that time, the transition had already happened cause he was, um, Jim Shooter, who is, I believe the best editor in chief Marvel ever, ever had. He is certainly the most talented, uh, the most accomplished in terms of being a creator as far as his writing and his, um, I mean, he's, he's a celebrated writer, especially to kids of the sixties, seventies, eighties, and nineties. For four decades, he was a very celebrated writer. He went on after becoming after being the editor in chief of Marvel Comics. He reemerged with Valiant Entertainment, put them on the map. They were a huge deal. Um, and then he went on to do uh, several other different projects. I, I think he is an extremely talented guy. I know that towards the end, I did an entire uh, pod, uh, podcast dedicated to Jim Shooter and and his his rise and 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 fall and and took the quotes from the people that said after Secret Wars, which was the first multi-part um, uh, intercompany crossover of its kind, uh, crossing in and out of books in 1984-1985, that the sales success of that changed him, went to his head. This is what they say, not me. I'm reading from other sources 
whether it's um you know the different sources that I give along the way um and 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 they're in that podcast and they talk about how it changed him and um my favorite period with Jim was the late 70s early 80s I thought that that's where he was at his best in a nutshell the reason he is the best I've ever seen not only did he write my favorite Avengers uh uh, run of the Avengers ever. It has got soap opera. It has got character pathos. It's got cosmic threats. It never forgets to throw the switch with the action. Jim Shooter's Avengers. I did an entire podcast on that as well. Korvac. Uh, uh, I think it was on our Bring on the Bad Guys uh, segment on Bring on the Bad Guys with Korvac, K-O-R-B-A-C. And you will see that as a writer, I believe he is one of the best to ever do it. Uh, but he always collaborated with the best artist. His most resonant work is with George Perez. And there's a reason for that. George uh, was in his prime during this period. George had about hit his fifth or sixth year in the business and was singing, singing at that point. And just everything was clicking for him. He had great collaborators, great inkers. Um, and and uh, Jim just really went on to do some exceptional work. His stuff with Secret Wars is drawn by Mike Zeck. I mean, Jim did do great work with great artists because, again, without great artists, we don't have comic books. And to me, the art comes first, foremost, and I'm going to get to that in a minute. Jim Shooter uh, was at the last year of his being the EIC when I was there. But my So my very first year in comics is his last. So they showed this Marvel Universe handbook. And, uh, oh, and the reason, by the way, not just his writing, he gave Frank Miller the green light to become a writer, not an artist. And I believe that changed comic books forever. Frank's Daredevil, Frank's Ronin, Frank's Batman, seminal works. Walt Simonson, same thing, threw the switch on him. Let him go hog wild on Thor with the single best run on Thor ever, second only. I mean, tied with the Kirby Stanley, uh, maybe a slight edge for its modern take. He let John Byrne write, draw Fantastic Four for five years, one of the best runs right next to Lee and Kirby. I mean, the best runs on many of these characters, X-Men, Claremont, Byrne, Cockrum, all hand, all under him. Um, the rise of one of my favorite artists ever, Art Adams, under him. So lots of achievements, lots of letting uh, artists run wild and become writers. And uh, so my last year, his last year, is my first year. So yesterday, in a nutshell, was my 35th year in comics celebrated. And so I was excited. And I thought about what I've, what do I look back at the industry over 35 years? 35 years is a long time to... Uh, you know, work in the comic business. Here's the deal. I have watched a lot of changes. We're not going to detail all those, but get ready for that episode. Uh, 35 years and maybe the five, the six most uh, uh, important changes in the comic business since I've been in it. But one of those things that happened while I was in it was Image Comics. And because I have these great interview books, now I've already... I uh, told you that I am remiss that I did not give proper credit to an interview because it's sourced. I've told you guys, and I, and you guys have told me, that's the thing that I love the most, is that whether I'm in Florida or I'm in uh, Texas or I'm in Arizona or I'm in New York, as I was recently, you guys always make it a point to tell me how much you love, uh, again, the sourcing, the receipts, um, where I can put things in times and places because I have a vast collection. I am just shy of being a hoarder. Um, and and I, I have absorbed a lot. And I know a lot. And I've been around a long time. Before I broke in, again, I was consuming since I was six or seven years old. 
And uh, there's times I think it started at seven and then there's flashes and I go, I remember grabbing that comic and reading that comic and being excited by that comic. And that has to place me back at six years old. So you guys, it's been a long time. My, uh, my obsession, consumption of this art form, uh, comic books itself has been a long time coming. But in the 90s, we did something special. We made this thing called Image Comics. Image is also going to be turning 30. And uh, we all did interviews. David Anthony Crafts, comics interview. 495, 650 in Canada, okay? Issue number 119, comics interview, issue 119. My illustration, the cover to Youngblood Strike File number two with Die Hard and Super Patriot is on there. To the left on the cover is Jim Valentino's Shadowhawk. To the right is Todd McFarlane's Spawn. It interviews all of us. Interviews, the reason they matter, because you get on that phone and I'm going to tell you, you do, you wonder, what am I about to say? What, 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 what I need to sort of edit myself as you're talking to the reporter. Some reporters want to get you emotional so that you will not edit yourself and that you will be more raw and that you will give them something that is regrettable. I read to you guys from a comics journal interview in feuds, in our comic book feuds section with between myself and Todd McFarlane, where we both gave interviews to the comics journal. I was advised by my good friend Jeff Loeb, do not get emotional. Be very just matter of fact. He gave me words to say. He told me how to present things. He was a great counselor to me. Todd's reads very emotional. It's very hot. He's um, very raw. It is an example of someone who is attempt myself knowing that what I say is going to be put under the microscope. So say it carefully. Um, and my entire time doing that interview, I was attempting to go low. I remember it like it was yesterday. And this is like 1996. I am going low. I am trying to just be uh, very positive be very humble about my situation. And Todd is very raw and angry. And it plays out. They both play out that way. So some so when you ever whenever you give an interview, it's it's the thing I love about it. I mean, we go on YouTube, we watch interviews. A visual interview is just the same as a print interview. Things are said. I mean Princess Diana kind of took a wrecking ball to the royal family in what was it, 95, 96, 97, 98, I forget when she did her interview. And said she was done with her, you know, marriage to Prince Charles, the famous line, there's not room enough for three in this marriage. I mean, I am I think I'm paraphrasing that. And, uh, but it gave you, I mean, it, it was a time and a place and a situation and it, uh, it rocked the royal family, that one interview. So the things that we do, the things that we say, when we capture them at a certain time, I think reflect very much the time that we are in. And I believe everything is of a time. The burst of the 90s was of a time. Why did it happen? I can tell you till the cows come home why I believe it happened. And you're just going to have my opinion on it. But uh, I don't believe it's because people wanted shiny multiple copies and cards. That was kind of the excitement. What they wanted was something fresh. They wanted something new. To kind of set the table for this, I did a signing recently. And the retailer was telling someone who I work with, not myself. They were six, seven feet from me. And he said that Wednesdays have lost their magic. That since midsummer, he said, I don't know if you've ever experienced that magic on a Wednesday, that one book that drives things, that one book that gets people excited. We haven't had that in a while, the retailer said. I'm concerned. I, I, I need a book that drives traffic, that gets people in my store, that gets people to walk up and down these aisles, maybe take a little more than that one book. And we're ready for it. We generally... If, if, if we know that a book is going to be something special, we at least kind of have an idea of it. 
within 24 hours because the buzz is there. The phones are ringing. And so we then prepare, you know, our store around that excitement. That's, you know, it's good business. It's good businessman. It's good store owner. I know basically every store feels that's that way. I, I follow a lot of retailers. I follow a lot of comic book retailers on, um, on Twitter. And it's funny. There are some that want to be your, um, guide through comic books. They want you to like what they like. And that's what, in my opinion, ruined the end of the nineties. And there were guys, some of which laughably got into comics themselves, but they used to work retail. Um, and they would crap on your tastes and your likes. I've told you guys all when I was in high school and I went to buy the new Duran Duran album and the guy at the Tower Records, Tower Records was a chain of uh, record stores that was totally synonymous with the word, word cool. They had great locations. They had cool stores. They had a store in Brea across from the Brea Mall that was always hopping. People were always in it. And uh, I went to buy the new Duran Duran, you know, uh, CD. And the guy who was helping me at the at the at the uh, counter was hardcore punk Mohawk, um, probably a little slipping into what would be called by today's standards. If you looked at a photo of him, you'd think he's kind of punk goth, if that's a combo. And he was like, huh, "You buying this album?" And you feel it. You feel that shame immediately. But I'm like, I'm not gonna be shamed. I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what I like. And uh, he kind of sprayed me with his skunk tail. That's you know, it's a spray of shame. Can't believe you like that. Retailers who've engaged, I've seen them engage in person. Uh, I've seen them try and diminish and uh, drag on customers' purchases because they want to influence you. They want you to like what they like because, hey, maybe there's one more person they can talk about it when you come in and visit them and they're lonely because they're in that store a lot. On Twitter, it's no different. There's some tastemakers. They want to tell you what to buy and, and what you should be following and just in case. Then there's guys who are like, big day, Big day here at the store. Here's what we got. Hope you guys can come in and enjoy it all. That's the side that I err on. Just come on in. We're throwing a party. There's a lot of different stuff. Everybody's tastes are different. Beauty is in the high. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And 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 we got a big shipment. Come on in. And maybe the shipments are smaller sometimes. And they say, hey, the shipment is smaller this week, but some great stuff. Push, push, push. Not. I'm curating your tastes. You really should be checking this out. This is special. This da da da. Okay. Uh, you know, they have reflected much of what this guy at this store that I signed at said that there's a magic missing right now. Well, I don't know about you, but I'm not buying. I am at an all-time low in buying comic books, current comic books. But I am at an all-time high in buying omnibuses, trade collections, hardcovers. Um, I spend a lot of money on comic books and I don't think Marvel Comics really cares whether I'm buying a copy of X-Men or their trade paperback collection, their epic collection. I don't think DC cares if I'm buying Batman or if I'm buying their latest Jack Kirby, the fourth world slipcase hardcover for $200. I'm telling you right now, they would prefer I make the $200 purchase rather than the $3 purchase. And so would the retailer. The retailer will tell you, cost him more to buy that omnibus, but he gets more. Okay. What are you going to, you're going to buy a comic for $2, sell it for four and be happy with that extra two or buy something for 90 bucks, sell it for 200 and go, I made 110. Okay. Um, so reprints, remastered editions. I shared this mega gigantic Eternals collection that collects all of Jack's Eternals, Jack Kirby's Eternals. It's a giant hardcover. It's literally the size of a coffee table. If you put legs on it, you have a table. 
I showed it on my feed and suddenly everybody wanted to know where I got it. And I suddenly started seeing them pop up in other people's feeds. Other professionals are like, I just got this. It, it, it came out like four months ago, but all you got to do is give something a little bandwidth and everybody starts ordering it. Now, a lot of stores don't carry it. And unfortunately you're going to, you may have to go through an Amazon. Um, did you know that I hope I ordered one of my, cause I have two, I ordered one of mine through Walmart. I actually got one of my giant Eternals, you know, hardcovers through Walmart. What is up? Okay. So I'm buying the least amount of new comics that I've ever bought. That doesn't mean I don't love comics. I love comics. I need comics. And if it's a new collection of the George Perez Avengers run that I loved as a kid, I'll buy that. How many collections do I have of John, John Byrne and Terry Austin? I have a lot. Every time they reprint it, I go, what am I doing? But my hand crosses the table. I swipe the card. I get the collection. Okay. Same with Frank Miller. Same with all these artists collections. Same with action figures. Same with toys. But I'm, I'm at an all-time low uh, for what's currently going down. And maybe there is a lack of magic at the comic store right now. And, and, and maybe it's being buttressed and, and counterbalanced by some of these great reprints and special editions. I bought a Dune book. I bought a Dune special edition. Uh, it was very expensive. I thought about it, but I'm like, screw it. There's so little I'm enjoying. I will enjoy this. It's got all the bells and whistles. It's special. I had to order it uh, online. The, the Folio Society Golden Age and Silver Age and Bronze Age books that I've spoken of on the show that are put together over in the UK. They are literally the Folio Society has a website. It's the, and then F-O-L-I-O. Their Marvel Silver Age, Bronze Age are fantastic. They're not cheap. They are not cheap, kids, but they are amazing in their production values, their reproductions, their facsimile editions. So again, Still interfacing with comics. What are you doing? Do you love comics? Do you love comics as much right now as you have in your entire collection? Maybe you're like, Life, I do not know what you're saying. Comics have never been better to me. I have this, 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 and this. I want to hear from you. Let me know that. Let me know exactly what you're loving, why you're loving it. One of the big things that I would say that we will deal with is that I believe, you know, and, and this will be something we dwell on because in 35 years what have I seen change what I've mainly seen changed is a hyper focus on the writer and it started because artists tend to be a little more temperamental in terms of how publishers look at them and artists generally are responsible for capturing so much of the excitement when something gets tremendously buzzy and they're still reeling over when we all formed Image Comics and they laughed at us. More than anything, they said we weren't going to survive. We weren't, it wasn't going to make it. I'm very proud of the work that I put into making Image Comics what it is today. You know, um, Magic Johnson played for the Lakers. He gave them a golden era. Then he retired. Then he came back. He was a part owner. Um, and, and then he sold that stake. He went and bought a piece of the Dodgers. Then he came back to be a general manager of the Lakers had a falling out and left, but that doesn't mean that he is still not synonymous with some of the favorite things you've ever and I have ever experienced and loved about that franchise. So while currently he is more of a fan of the Lakers than anything, he is part of what built that city, what built that mega franchise. And that's how I look at Image, even if I'm doing no comics through them at, at, at any given time. I'm so proud of what we did, what we accomplished together. And today, we're going to tackle some interviews. Amazing Heroes, 
Comics interview. Comics interview. Sorry, not a means. Comics interview number 119. Inside Image Comics. Just to get inside of some of these brains. Jim Salakrup is the guy that interviews Todd. Jim was Todd's editor on Spider-Man. And uh, this is is a really interesting interview. So Jim Salakrup was still working for Marvel at the time he did this interview. He acted as an interviewer for Comics Interview. And and, uh, here's the preface. Jim Salakrup... So this, this is by Jim Salakrup, interviewing Todd McFarlane, published in David Anthony Crafts, Comics Interview 119. Jim Salakrup has known Todd McFarlane, Todd McFarlane for a long time. Having edited McFarlane on Amazing Spider-Man at Marvel and unleashing him to write and draw the all-new, adjectiveless Spider-Man series that set sales records and ushered in, for lack of a better term, what we will call the image era of creator-driven, mega-million-selling comics. Oh, now, as of this writing, Jim Salakrup is at Topps Comics. And Todd, one of the kingpins of the new Malibu Free Image. Todd's one of the kingpins of the new Malibu Free Image. So let's listen in between the static and the feedback of Jim Salakrup's speakerphone to hear what's in the works from the big hat, the big hot. <laughs> I'm wearing my glasses too. <laughs> the big hot, Toddy McFarlane himself. Todd McFarlane, is this, is this going to be one of those highly intellectual poo-poo interviews, Todd says. Laughter. And Jim Salakrup says, well, speaking of which, why the hell did you ever do that interview with Gary Groth? Gary Groth ran the comics interview, I mean, the comics journal, of whom I cited earlier, did the Dune oral history, and has my favorite John Byrne interview. So he says, why did you ever do that with Gary Groth? Gary Groth was synonymous with comics, the comics journal, and he loved holding everyone's feet to the fire. Um, Todd said, for two reasons. One, I could say stuff in there that I would never, ever be able to say in The Wizard. And number two, I knew that every one of my peers was going to read it. So all the guys who hate me, I gave them a reason to hate me, okay? Word for word what Todd says. Jim laughs laughs and says, why is that, Todd? And Todd says, I am getting tired of fucking people hating me for no reason at all. After all, I'm not doing nothing to aggravate these people, so fuck it. If they're going to hate me, I'm going to give them a reason. So I just go, I'm going to do an interview that pisses everybody off. I have to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do an interview that pisses everybody. The guys that get the joke will get the, get the joke in the interview. And the guys that take it all too seriously will go, I can't actually, you know what? I can't repeat what he says. I can't repeat. In today's, um, in today's uh, world, I cannot repeat the next three words that Todd says. Um, so I'm not going to say them. Uh, but he's basically saying that they will insult him. I will not repeat his insult. Jim says, uh, and being of a time, as I speak of, of a time, at that time, it's weird, probably shouldn't say it under any circumstances, but that insult is uh, was not anything that Jim Salakup reacts to and anything that they were fearful of printing because it was of a time. We didn't live in this time. This is, this is again, being printed in 1993 and it's a different world. I'm not going to repeat that. Uh, so Jim just doesn't miss a beat and says, so now Gary is going to go after poor Dave Sim. Dave Sim did an issue of Spawn. He did Cerebus. And Todd goes, I got no problem with Gary Groth because Gary Groth thinks the opposite of me. You know what I mean? And Jim Salakrup says, I, I think he'd be flattered to hear that. Todd says, well, I've told Gary all he needs is a date. Fuck. He just needs a date and the, and the coach a baseball team and he'd be normal. Laughter. But see, Gary Groth is like, oh, it's, it's like not, it's like me being an atheist 
and him being, uh, and Jim Salakrup says, religious fanatic? Whatever. I, I, I don't care. I'm just saying that if one, if I say one thing and he says the opposite, it's because of his beliefs, you know? The guys that astound me are my fellow peers that do superhero comics and are basically more fanatical than Gary, as far as I'm concerned, that do the same thing that I do. These are the guys that boggle my mind. The Gary Groth says, the Gary Groth says black when I say white doesn't bother me. That my fellow superhero peers say black when I say white. That one stuns me. That stuns me more than anything. Jim Salakrup says, well, how are you and Dave Sim getting along? I just got the script for 10. It's the coolest. The coolest. It's 22 pages of political soapbox for Dave. It works. It's funny. It's got Wonder Woman and Batman. The thing. It's got everybody. It's a keeper. What made you include Dave Sim? Cerebus guy in all this. What made, made me include Dave? Two reasons. One, he's Canadian. And two, he's always been a kind of a fuck. And I admire guys like that. <laughs> uh, this is great. Um, how about the other issues, Jim Salakrup says. How about uh, the issues with Alan Moore? And he says, as we're talking, I'm finishing up the last pages. You know, the stuff with the other writers. I'm hoping people don't think that Alan Moore is coming in to do Watchmen in 22 pages. It's, it's In fact, it's 24 pages. He wants to expand it, but you know, I'm like, uh, I hope people aren't going, okay, g give us that great, deep, philosophical story in 24 pages. It's not going to be that, he says. Even though the story takes place in hell, it's kind of a funny story, and I think uh, it's kind of weird and whacked. What Alan and Neil have done so far, and Dave, with just one issue each, take it for what it's worth and enjoy it for 20 minutes. And leave it at that. So, uh, Jim says, why'd you get these guys in the first place? And I think this is the meat of the interview right here. Why'd I get them? Oh, I couldn't take my critics saying I couldn't write. I caved. Oh, laughter. It's not the critics. You, you know me, Jim. Long enough to know that whenever anybody goes left, I go right. So right now, everybody seems to be selling comic books on covers and not content. So being that everyone's doing it that way. Uh, hang on, I lost my trade. So right now, everybody seems to be selling comic books on covers and not content. So being that everybody is doing it that way, I decided to try a different angle, which is to try to sell it on the content. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'll argue which one is. But I'm just saying, if tomorrow everybody tries to sell on content, I'll probably sell on the cover. I got to where I am by doing the opposite. It doesn't mean that I think it's better. It's just whenever you do something different, it seems to sell. Plus, I think we're getting a little bit away from what used to sell comic books. My attitude is, like people go, Oh, Todd, your gimmick is you're bringing in the writers. At what point are we at comic books right now? That because I decided to bring on quality writers. It's considered a gimmick? Years ago, it used to be because it was a hell of a comic. And uh, I think this is some juicy stuff right there. So this is Todd McFarlane's take in 1993. 
He says, and we just said, and I'll do it with, let me say this without the Todd influx that makes it fun. Right now, everybody seems to be selling comic books on covers and not content. Does that sound familiar to you guys? So being that everyone is doing it that way, I decided to try a different angle, which is to try to sell it on the content. So what I can say reading that now, I'm stepping out of the interview. Todd is clearly doing it the opposite because Todd McFarlane Spawn has been doing 20, 20 plus covers on every new launch, which is funny when you think about right here, he says, I'm selling on content. And he even says here, I'll argue. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I'll argue which one is. But I'm just saying if tomorrow everybody tried to sell on content, I'd sell on covers. And he's saying up here, everybody is selling comic books on covers and not content. So being that everybody is doing it like that, I decide to try a different angle. Sell on content. And then down here, he says... What point are we at in comics now that because I decided to bring on quality writers, it's considered a gimmick? Uh, Years ago, it used to be because it was a hell of a book. Well, Todd is currently, again, and we did an entire, he did an entire CGC, you ordered, was it, how many was it? I don't know how many was. But at the end of that, was it 500? Was it 1,000? I literally don't remember, but it was a giant number. And you got a CG, you got, you got cleared to get a CGC uh, signature. And you could send that in with the pre-qualification that they witnessed him sell it. And it was a giant boost. I had a store, here's what I'm getting mixed up because I went into my store here and they ordered 2,500 uh, spawns in order to get X amount of... Um, of the CGC. So it's just what a difference 1993 to 2021 makes in that the Spawn franchise is currently 100% being sold on covers. And uh I'm and and so he must obviously think given his own uh example right here that he is going in a different direction that I guess there's content and now he's doing something else. That is a really interesting very rich take. Uh, uh, I think it's in this that he talked about, uh, boom, boom, boom. He talks about doing more with Alan Moore. I love holding this stuff. I love to see those papers. I don't have to flip through a screen. Um, say anything currently about image comics here. Um, uh, I think he does talk about Batman spawn with Frank Miller. And he says, uh, well, this all came about because this is great. This is from Todd, page 13 of the comics of the comics interview magazine. He says, uh, Jim Salkrup says, how did this Batman spawn come about? And he says, it came about dot, dot, dot. Since uh, the the image guys were, were a competitive lot. Rob and Jim are doing their crossover with Valiant and the big toddy, his own words. And the big toddy couldn't stand still and just let them steal the thunder. No way. But on the other hand, I don't want to step on their toes. So basically, they'll do theirs. <clears throat> and when that's starting to fade from memory, kaboomo. Another big crossover with the name image on it. And we'll be doing it in the public eye here for the whole summer. I think that's how this ends. 
Um, so it's just interesting. The acknowledgement, I've told you guys how competitive we are. And that is um, straight straight out of his mouth, how competitive we are. This has an interview also in it with um, with Jim Valentino. And uh, he is talking about uh, his, his uh, work on Shadowhawk. And I'm going to peruse this real quick because this is really fun. And he's talking about... Uh, you know, the the you know constructing the character of Shadowhawk and making that a success, and uh, he really says that the Shadowhawk character came from the idea that he had for Archie Comics, the Fox. He says Archie Comics decided they were going to bring back characters as darker and grittier. Kelly Jones had done a proposal for the Hangman. Mike W. Barr had done a character. I thought about the Fox. And the Fox has always been kind of a third-rate Batman. So I started thinking about Batman. What makes Batman work for me? The things that didn't make him work for me were the souped-up car racing down the streets, the various bat gadgets, the kid's sidekick never worked for me. The idea that he had this working relationship with the police just didn't work for me. If this character is indeed the scourge of the night, if he's supposed to be bringing, if he's supposed to be bringing fear into the hearts of criminals, then it would seem to me that most citizens would not know that he was around and he wouldn't make it, and he would not make his presence known. You wouldn't see him until it was too late. If you saw him, he was after you, and you had a reason to be scared. This guy would take you out. Also, the idea that Batman would just do a ballet with guys as obviously dangerous as Joker or Two-Face. Uh, these maniacs. It didn't make sense to me. It was like a formula saying, this doesn't work. What works? That eventually became everything that I put together to make Shadowhawk, and I, I think that's really cool. I forgot. So there you go, Jim Valentino sharing with us the absolute inspiration that he had in regards for Shadowhawk, which went on to be a massive, giant success for Jim at, at Image. I'm trying to see if he's got... He doesn't really share a lot of thoughts on uh, on the company. Um, he, he says here... Um, uh, this is pretty funny. <laughs> Sorry, I spoke too soon. Now that Image Comics is no longer with Malibu, we were using Malibu Comics as a distributor. He said, uh, oh, oh, this interview, sorry, sorry, sorry. This interview is conducted by, come on, who's in? Mark Lucas. Mark Lucas is the author of this interview with Jim Valentino. And he asks him, now that Image is broken off from distributing their books through Malibu, how does this change Image? Jim says, it doesn't really. I keep hearing a nasty rumor that Image is splitting up. Everyone's going their own way. Proof positive is you've got homage with Jim and Mark. You have Extreme with Rob Liefeld. You have Todd McFarlane. You have Jim Valentino creating the shadow line, his imprint. They see us all as separate entities. Well, when we first started out, when we announced what we were doing, we were separate entities who came together under the banner. The banner, the umbrella, is Image. That uh, we all have separate companies. It's still the same as Image being its own publishing company, standing solo. was inevitable right from the start. It was inevitable from the very first meeting. It was the next logical step to take. I don't think it's going to change a whole lot, except that everyone in the group is talking, is taking the idea of producing comics in a more timely fashion, very seriously. And uh, I, he's he's excited about that. And I think, you know, Jim really, from the start, was a glass half full guy with Image Comics, and it was fun to see, and it was fun to share time with him. Um, I will be hard-pressed to get to anything from me. We will... So, so the 90s Strike Back is a series. This is officially number two today. And uh, somebody said to me, uh, this author is Charles Novinsky. N-O-V-I-N-S-K-I-E. 
his, I didn't read this, you know, I'm not prepared. I'm going to read this blind. Like I was reading that thing with Todd blind and I had to back off of it. Not much can be said that hasn't already been stated concerning Rob Liefeld and the effect Image Comics has had on the industry. In one year's time, Image Comics has grown from the dream of seven original founders to that of the number two ranking comic company in the industry today. Rob Liefeld and company have been propelled into celebrity status and are swamped by fancy conventions and store signings. Rob took time from his hectic schedule to talk about the success of Image and the plans for the future, including their upcoming Valiant Image crossovers. I can only tease this today. We're going to end with this tease. Charles says, were you surprised by the success of Image Comics? And my answer is, absolutely. I was blown away. We were all blown away. We were just a group of friends getting together to form a comic book company to suit our needs and our creative desires. We never thought we would hit the number two company spot twice. And this is what I did not know. It says right here, it just happened again in the month of March of 1993. I guess we were twice. We were number two twice. I've always wanted to create my own characters and I couldn't see working for Marvel for the rest of my life given the way that that company was structured. So I basically sat down and put on paper the minimum amount of sales that I would need to make to keep the clothes on my back and roof over my head. And I went, Go. He says, were you surprised at the amount of exposure that you were creating for yourself? You've been on the Levi's 501 Jeans commercial and the Dennis Miller show, and most recently I saw you on a Saturday morning news show. I said, it's amazing, isn't it? I have to tell you, I'm most excited over the fact that I was a question on Double Jeopardy the other night. Nothing in my entire career excited me more at the time than the fact that I was a question on Jeopardy. Um, then he asked me about the Levi's ad, and I go into this... Um, we are going to go more into, I'm going to end on a cliffhanger. We have to have more for the 90 Strikes Back Part 3. Here's the deal. That interview with Todd is very interesting. This comics interview was unearthed by me in a box. I did not know it would be so relevant and so interesting. I think Todd's statements are interesting about zigging when they zag. Uh, he, would, he used to pack content as his gimmick, and now clearly he has gone to the side where he is covers and gimmicks as his gimmick, which is interesting. It's a sign of the times. Magic on Wednesdays. During this time, there was magic every Wednesday. Everybody brought their best, not just from Image, from Marvel, from uh, DC. Everybody was at the most competitive they ever were. So, a little bit all over the place today, but the theme was the 90s strike back, got backdoored into that through, you know, the condition of comics today, what this comic store owner said to me, a lot to think about. But uh, the 90s, uh, was was certainly the age of the creator. I, I really believe more so than any time the creator uh, stood out. And we're going to continue to examine that as we go deeper and deeper and deeper into what made the 90s the 90s and why so many people broke through at the level that they broke through and achieved what they achieved at that, um, gosh, I mean, on, on, on a scale that really hasn't been seen before or since. So... Stay with me. The 90s strike back part three is inevitable. It's coming. This is, as you know, the best part of the show when we get to read your reviews. I read your reviews on the air. You guys are so good to me. You're so kind. You're so generous. You're so wonderful. And I am so thankful that you guys are spreading uh, the love of this show. And, and um, I am always happy at the end of every show. Uh, we need your guys' word of mouth. We need your reviews. We need your five-star ratings. We need your subscriptions. Thank you for all that you're doing to help get the show out there. Today, uh, I got two. Uh, I got two, 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 two uh, um, uh, man, we got a lot. You guys have been, you guys have been uh, really, really cramming, cramming us. Um, thank you. 
Thank you for all these great reviews. Today I'm going to read a, uh, a review that says, it's extreme awesomeness. It's by Buzz Padilla. Buzz Padilla. Buzz Padilla. Extreme awesomeness. A fantastic celebration of comics. Rob's enthusiasm for comics is contagious. I enjoy how Rob brings his experience as both a comic creator and a mega fan providing the history of comics in his fun personal stories. Listeners, beware. You'll spend a lot of money on back issue bins and eBay after listening because you're going to get pumped for older comics. Hey, as long as you are buying the comics, um, uh, man, so uh, I really, really, really appreciate. There is a really lengthy review that we're going to save for next week, um, and I'm going to get to that, but right now I'm going to wrap up with a second review by Kane, K-H-A-I-N-E-20. An amazing show. I was a young teenager when Rob first started drawing New Mutants and have followed him and loved his work ever since. I am ecstatic to see that he has a podcast and have listened faithfully ever since. The insights and the love he shares is amazing. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Kane20, K-H-A-I-N-E-20. Thank you. And thank you again to Budapazilla, is that I say that? B-U, Buzz Apadilla, B-U-Z-I-P-A-D-I-L-L-A. Thank you for your kind words. You guys continue to help us out. Spread the word, spread the love. I appreciate it so much. Um, I will be here giving you your observations, talking comics. We have so much to discuss, so much more to carry us. Uh, this I'm on social media, on Twitter, at Robert Liefeld, the full name. Blue check, that's really me. On Instagram, I'm at Rob Liefeld. Blue check, that's really me. I'm all over Facebook. I got a million groups. I'm always sailing around, commenting. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's, I, I, there is so much. I try and keep up with that algorithm. It changes all the time, but you can find me on there. You can always contact me on, uh, on, on all of those platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. I love talking with you guys. I love hanging out. You guys take care of yourselves. That, that, that's the most important thing to me. Um, if you need to take a break, take a break. If you need to take a day off, take a day off. If you need to get it right, get it right. This is, uh, you know, uh, Take care of yourself mentally, emotionally, spiritually. I'm rooting for you. And, uh, you know, stay safe. And we will talk again real soon. (laughs) 